Mrs. Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with My Life and Dancing, written by Maud Allen and published in 1908 by Paul R. Reynolds. Chapter 2 Childhood It is so refreshing and delightful to rest a while, to take a minute now and then to hark back to my first memories, to close my eyes and just imagine that I am the little Maud of other days, with my dollies as my constant companions. As I write, I have in my mind my first doll baby, a china baby with stiff little yellow-tinted china ringlets, blue eyes, and a tiny rosebud mouth. Her hands and feet, too, were china, and I did love her so. She came to me when I was only five months old, and then and there I named her Minnie, so they tell me. Her baby years, too, were not without adventure and excitement, she being once almost burned to death in the oven of the great kitchen stove, and only rescued by chance when the big, fat, good-natured cook was about to put glorious big round plum cake into the oven to bake. Another time my baby fell. She had been climbing about after the fashion of her tiny mother over chair and table, and so lost her balance, and down she went. I found the poor dear lying unconscious on the floor, with her arms and legs broken. Could a mother imagine anything more dreadful? I ran to rescue her, but while tenderly lifting the poor little body, the sawdust streamed to the floor. I dropped her as quickly. I ran screaming to mother, Oh, my dolly is blooding! I was not to be comforted till I saw a poor china baby taken to the hospital to get well. And so she was, and came home with rosy cheeks and new hands and feet, too. This time, though, of wood. And so pretty they were, although not quite so white as the limbs of old. But Mama assured me they were ever so much stronger. So I was satisfied and delighted to have my baby back again. All this while we were growing older and wiser, and soon the advent of a great big beautiful wax baby with real golden curls, the kind we can comb just as mothers comb their babies' curls, put poor little old-fashioned Minnie's nose out of joint. They got along wonderfully well together, but I noticed how Minnie grew more reserved and self-sacrificing, till at last she would do anything in the thought of pleasing her new sister. But now the dears are moldering away their dolls' lives in the bottom of an old trunk. Their useful days are over, and their noses smudgy and flattened. I imagine the mother of a real live baby has something of the same feeling that a small girl has for a well-beloved doll. Minnie came to me in Canada, and, as I have already said, when I was five months old in the first home that I can remember. How curiously a child's mind retains some impressions. While nearly everything else has faded from my memory about my Canadian home, I have a vivid recollection of the old base burner in the hallway, 
the clear isn't glass windows of which gave out the fire brightly on winter nights. From this same stove came my first intimate acquaintance with Santa Claus, and Minnie fell from the pack on his back through the front door of that stove. I remember Santa Claus, dear old Mary Santa Claus, how a child's heart bounds with expectation and joy at the nearing of Christmas tide, with the clanging of joy bells, the hurry and bustle of the grown-ups with their grand air of secret-keeping. And then Santa Claus. One hears the tinkling bells of his merry steeds far away over the snowy hilltops, the crack of the long whip as he fairly flies in his haste to visit all the good and loving little tots waiting his coming. I remember it was Christmas Eve. I had been told again the story and meaning of the hour, and, too, of the long white-bearded Santa Claus who loved us and would on this night deliver gifts, rejoicing with us all. We were tucked away in our little cots, my dollies and I, but not before we had taken the longest stockings we could find and hung them up at the open fireplace so that Santa would not have far to go to fill them with precious goodies. But we couldn't sleep. So busy were we thinking of good Santa and the desire burning within us to see him. It was still and dark about us, and we waited. Soon we heard something. "'Tis Santa! Come quick!' Away we sped down the broad staircase. By the big base burner was an enormous basket loaded with strange things, and little mother, hearing the pitter-patter of the little feet, peeped around the corner to warn us not to come near, as Santa Claus was there and had said he would stop till the morning if we would now run back to our dreamland nook and be patient. And Santa did stop, and Santa caught me in his arms and let me fondle his long snowy beard and play with the white locks which hung to his shoulders and ride in the now empty sack on his back and play with the beautiful whip that had fired his air ponies on in order that he might come to visit me. Shall I ever forget? Never, if I live to be a thousand. My baby heart, too, loved and lived in fairy tales. Even now I revel in them, and nothing is sweeter than to let myself be carried off to mystic lands and mingle with the dear fairies. I remember clearly the first time I heard of the babes in the wood. I remember, too, going off and covering myself with the leaves that had fallen from the trees in the great garden. Another delight was, although I was but four years old, to stand up in the big swing and work up till the ropes were at right angles with the tall piles supporting them. Of course, this was to the great distress of my nurse and mother, but I loved it. The excitement seemed good to me, and I would grip the rope tighter and wish I could fly as high as the birches. Another recollection, still as clear as though it had happened but yesterday, is that of burning my right forefinger. I carry the scar today, but it was the first real showing of my interest in life, in that I wanted to find out everything for myself. Mama said the stove was hot, and it would burn me, and the burn would pain if I should touch it. But curiosity was uppermost in my little brain, 
and I wondered and wondered if it could possibly be that to touch the hot stove meant pain. It did look so pretty, red, bright, brilliant, glowing red in spots, and I touched it. A pleasure unbounded for all children in northern countries is the snow. Glorious piles of white, sparkling snow will hold the attention of the most capricious youngsters for hours. Oft have we coasted in our pretty sleigh with our great Newfoundland dog as leader down the great hills of snow and oft through one little side step of the knowing and fun-loving animal were we thrown at the bottom into great drifts till only our feet were exposed to tell the tale. Oft times my mother thought she had lost her baby girl in the great pile of whiteness. Rover stood by and laughed, yes, till his conscience pricked him, and he would pretend to gather us all up again, and then tear up the hill in a hurry to begin all over again. What a pity such companions cannot talk! Then I remember being taken by my parents, and my dollies taken by me, and together with our governess we turned our faces towards California. And then, in that beautiful state of roses and sunshine, I received my first real-life lessons. Speaking of my journey from Canada to San Francisco brings to my remembrance one peculiar incident that will ever remain as one of my vivid, childish recollections. The train stopped at a wayside station, and most of the passengers alighted to obtain glimpses of the many Indians who haunted the place to sell their wares. I don't think my mother once thought of any danger to me, but suddenly she missed me, just as the train was pulling out of the station. There was a hurried search, but I was nowhere to be found. Instantly the conductor pulled back to the platform, and there, running off towards the woods, with a glint of flaxen hair under her arm discernible from the edge of the red blanket, was an Indian squaw, with another red woman in her trail. My mother says that it was the vivid color of my hair flying in the wind that attracted the attention of my friends. Of course, I was rescued immediately, and soon, baby-like, I forgot my fear, and before we were halfway to our destination, I was making free with my fellow passengers, as brave as ever. But even today I can close my eyes and see the reddish-brown face bending over mine as the Indian woman whipped me up under her arm and started off. I know that I caused my parents a great deal of uneasiness, for I was not the dreamy sort of a child that so many people think I was, but a romp of a girl with ambitions to climb the highest trees and to see the sunrise from the top of the tallest mountain. It seemed more natural to me to climb the fence upon entering the garden from school than to go in by the gate. I don't to this day know why, yet fence climbing did have a fascination for me. Naturally, too, it brought me many a fall, and serious ones at that, but I seemed never to be convinced of either the impropriety of the act or the danger involved to me and my pretty clothes, although nurse would talk and scold all the time she mended the horrible rents in pinafore and stockings. I would then try and comfort her, saying, Never mind, nursie, there are such heaps of lots, prettier stockings and pinafores in the shops, 
and we can get some new ones. I valued little the dainty things I used to wear at that time. Later, I allowed my two dear dollies, especially Mabel, because she grew to be such a big, lovely girl, to wear them, and she is laid to rest in the big trunk in the little dress she liked best. When about seven years old, I was sent to the country for six months. Being rather frail, the orders were to let me run wild. Not that I needed any encouragement. I loved to go barefoot and hatless, chasing the butterflies and making friends with the wild flowers. To be in such perfect contact with nature was a joy hitherto almost unknown to me, and I was ravished with its delights, and grew and grew. The waving golden corns, the murmuring brooks, the little tumbling waterfalls, and the singing of the birds all delighted me and made me think about what it all meant and why it all was. I came to many conclusions, but the impressions were daily so varied that I often had to change my ideas, and for a time I grew unhappy at not being able to unravel the great mystery. At such moments I would run to the village school, and the headmaster would allow me to sit in a classroom and listen to the instruction. This seemed to help and soothe my brain, and I would go away feeling quite at ease again. Once at this village school I entered a spelling match, and kept up almost to the last. Then, how annoyed I was! I had to take my seat, because I missed spelling unanimous. I thought, as I took my seat, so ashamed, that had the girl before me not missed it too, I was sure I could have kept up, because then the teacher would not have given me, a little girl, as hard a word as he would a big girl. I pass onward. The so-called primary classes at school were over, and the grammar grades, with the many enchanting studies, were knocking at the door when we went camping for the first time. I don't think any European knows what real camping out means, unless he or she has been to America and gone through it. A greater, purer freedom one can never imagine. The charms of early morning berry-picking excursions, ate swimming, mountain climbing, and the grand bonfire of large six-foot logs piled up in dozens blazing at night, while one swings lazily to and fro in the low-stretched hammocks, are only known to real campers. One can imagine oneself free from every sorrow and care, free from the world's hurry and scurry. In Green Valley, high up in the Californian mountains, I learned to ride bareback, and at an early age I was keen on both swimming and riding. Though I had a dear little horse for my own special use, I determined to ride the largest one on the farm, and one day mounted it. All went well till, returning, the poor thing suddenly doubled up with pain. I did not know what to do. I could not keep my seat for long at the pace he was going, and the way he was tossing himself, and I was contemplating grabbing the first low tree branch to let him slip from under me, when, rounding the hill leading to the outstables, he threw me, and unhappily uphill, for I rolled under his iron-shod hoofs. I was carried to the house, 
and for hours lay in a very critical condition. While my poor steed, in spite of all veterinary assistance, breathed his last in the early dawn. I thought nothing of my own pain when they told me next morning that Frank was dead of a frightful colic. I forgave him my injuries. He never would have hurt me had he not been driven mad through suffering. My little legs were cut from knee to ankle, and I was confined to bed for weeks. Even now the slightest pressure where the gashes were reminds me of those hours of pain. Had it not been for my dear mother, who nursed me day and night, I am sure I never should have got well so soon. Her every touch seemed life-giving and healing. Many animal accidents have befallen me. I have noticed all my life long that dogs seem to like the taste of my flesh, for several times they have bitten pieces out of my legs and arms. I suppose under the impression that I dislike them, when the fact of the matter is I adore them, when they don't bite me. Even since growing up I have been bitten once by a dog and another time by a cab horse. The horse episode was ludicrous, although I suppose it is hard to imagine anything funny in a horse trying to eat one up. And now I think of it, I'm supposed to be in the memories of my childhood, but as I've started to write about the horse, I will continue to do so. The horse seemed to be eating quietly out of his leathern pouch, and as I passed under the swinging bag, I had no idea of intruding upon him. I suppose I must have hit his dinner bag, for before I had straightened my back to stand up, he gave a snort, raised his head, and gripped my arm tightly between his teeth. As it was winter, my furs protected me somewhat, and the teeth did not break the skin. But the pain brought a cry, and the horse freed my arm. The cabman, who was sitting eating his luncheon, scattered his meal to the four winds, crawled out upon his horse's back, and commenced to beat the beast with his fists. I suppose at any other time I would have stopped him, but just at that particular moment I was busy assuring myself that a part of my arm was not left in the horse's mouth. By this time a crowd of curious people had gathered, and a controversy was in the air when I took my first opportunity of slipping through the crowd and leaving the whole cabmen, horse, and crowd behind. There's a peculiarity about a German crowd. This happened in Berlin. When anything happens, very soon, without any relation to rhyme or reason, they get into a heated discussion, and the assistance of the sturdy, ever-ready-to-interfere police is often needed to scatter the crowd. With every recollection of my childhood, I call to mind instinctively the picture of my dear home in California. My world in those days was bounded on the west by the beautiful, restless Pacific, while to the northeast lay Canada, which, though my eyes could not see it, I knew was there. The other parts of the world I had yet to see, and I bothered little about them. The great ocean, with its uneven roll of waves and far-tossing foam, left a deep imprint upon my mind. The sound of rushing water ever carried me back again to California, 
leaving me on the vast Pacific shores, dancing in the waves with my playmates. With a view to becoming a pianist by profession, I first made acquaintance with the fearful joys of the piano lesson when, at a very early age, I was placed in the San Francisco School of Music under the able tuition of Professor E. S. Bonelli. There I began to learn the preliminaries and to grind out yards of scales when but five and a half years old. From the very beginning I knew what rhythm meant, for I think it was born in me, but the mystic sounds of nature have always drawn from me my best both in music and imagery. It was whilst at this school that I was inspired once to organize a small class to train some children in music. On Saturdays I gathered the tots about me, and very strictly did I assert my authority. My first feeling of elation under the approbation of my fellows came when I was a small girl. The baby class did so well under my care and guidance that it was publicly commented upon and I took to myself some of the printed laurels which were bestowed upon its tiny members. My work outside my school studies seemed now to be definitely decided upon, although I had marked talent for clay modeling and wood carving, to which I had, in spite of my other work, taken a great fancy. I was to become a musician, a pianist of fame, and I read with growing interest and delight Amy Fay's book on her stay in Germany. I read of the grand old masters and the charm that lay in their methods and work, and longed as an enthusiastic child can long for the days to come when I too should be bundled off to the fair lands of the old world with their mystic beauties and wonderful arts. I dug down in these years into the history of music and worked hard at the theory of it all. My interest was high and my enthusiasm unbounded. About this time came the great and glorious Sarah Bernhardt to San Francisco. My ambitious little heart burned within me. She was the one woman in the world I wanted to rival, and I have not lost the feeling yet. So great an artist, and yet so simple and childlike, it is no wonder that everyone loves her. I think the turning point in my career came from my first sight of that great woman. She inspired me to express my thoughts in another manner. I had hitherto used the piano as my medium, but when I played alone in the drawing room, I could feel the call of another art than I had chosen. Once my mother stole in softly and seated herself not far from me. When I had finished, she whispered, Of what is my little girl thinking that she plays like that? Of Sarah Bernhardt's wonderful talent, of the beautiful movements of her body, replied I. She seems to express more with it than with her lips. My mother did not understand, so remained silent as I played on and on, never tiring as unconsciously I wove a dance to the theme of the old masters. As a matter of fact, I did not understand myself then. Since I have often seen Madame Bernhardt in Paris, 
and always experienced the same curious delight in her performance that I did as a child. How strange it all is! My mind alternates between my Californian home and these lands over here, and much as I desire that they remain separate for a long time, they blend themselves into one great world over which I look with fondest recollections. Once upon a time, in California, one would think it a fairy tale by the beginning, and so it may be well called, for it has to do with my first fairy prince. I met with my first sentimental experience. I was nine years old, and he nineteen. I sat beside him as he talked gravely about his student life with all the dignity of his age, I admiring him every minute. Day after day I went out with him, sometimes dancing on before, sometimes clasping his hand in mine. Once, I remember, there was a picnic, and it was there I heard my fate. As I bounded along with a pink sunshade, he walking sedately with a basket of cake and sandwiches upon his arm, he said, I'm going away soon. Where? Back to my college. But when you are quite grown up, I shall come again for you. Day after day for two years I expected to grow up suddenly, and only forgot my student after being assured by my mother that I would not be grown up for many years. As I look back I honestly believe that was my first love affair, and I expect in every girl's life come just such events. Out of that incident I received an impression that love was comradeship and meant being good companions with some brave youth. Men seemed designed to help girls over creeks, and to carry the lunch basket and bear burdens, while girls, well, they were made just to be around all the time, to be the sunshine, and to make things livelier. But this idea was soon to be suddenly dissipated. For some weeks a teacher in the school I attended had dined with us often, Accordingly, he and I walked from the high school building home. Being just fifteen, and my dresses lengthened that spring, it gave rise to comments from my girlfriends. One day, one of them mysteriously took me into my mother's garden and whispered the news in my ear. She had heard on the best authority that I was going to marry the professor. Going home that evening, I said to him quite carelessly, I've heard such a stupid thing. Francis says people are saying that some day you and I are going to be married, like father and mother. We stood before my home, and he turned upon me suddenly, saying, Well, little girl, what if it were so? What if we should promise each other, here and now? I didn't wait to hear more. My good comrade had gone, and in his place stood a grave, serious man I greatly disliked at that moment. I stamped my foot, dropped my books in the dust, and in a rage tore around the house and, jumping over the back fence, rushed to a friend's house and refused to come back until after he had gone. So much for childish affections and girlish attachments. The last experience knocked all illusions out of my head. But I laugh now as I remember the spiteful manner in which I threw down my books and ran away. I had lost a friend and found a lover and was not at all pleased with the change. 
As they get more and more into the retrospective mood, I find old days crowding so closely upon me that tears make my written words look like the scratches of an old mother hen digging for her chicks. Well, so am I digging into the depths of memories long since laid by. One of the sweetest happened about my sixteenth birthday. In fact, covered the entire year. I had grown passionately fond of music, and it had long since been counted my life work, and, thinking it necessary that every little girl be started in the right way in her first musical days, I gathered about me, for the second time, because I loved them, fifteen or twenty children, and together we studied the preliminaries of music, which I had already mastered. Only a short time ago, a friend from California told me that one of these children, she's quite a young lady now, said, I learned so much under Miss Maud. I think it was because she was so sympathetic with me and loved me so well. It seemed to be my greatest ambition to have these children learn all I had learned. I worked hours with them when other girls would have been playing, and they never seemed anxious to pack up their books to go, but ever ready with new questions. At the end of each month, I examined them just as in real school, and although we were all children together, they were as proud and anxious to earn my praise as if I had been a stern professor. I have only the highest words of praise for my father and mother in that they kept me so diligently at studies I needed outside my music. It is not considered necessary by many parents to press a girl into ordinary studies, such as history, mathematics, and the like, if it has been decided the child should follow an artistic career. But if mothers knew how it broadens and expands naturally bright minds to dig into the experiences of great men's lives, which can only be done through books, they would not only help and advise, but would insist and command. The living often gain a vast amount of aid in the minutest and most personal things from the dead, especially from the study of historical literature. That is why I would implore young people entering upon a vocation of art to have a firm foundation upon which to build before starting out. It is the same as when one builds a beautiful home. No man with common sense would erect a mansion upon a foundation of sand. So no girl with high ambitions can enter into a glorious life of art without the knowledge of the world as it is revealed in books. Travel only adds to that knowledge and enhances it, broadening and making the character of the girl more fitted for her life work. Just how much gratitude a girl owes to her parents if they are judicious and well-balanced, she will never realize until she compares a well-rounded career, a full and varied life, with that of the ordinary artist who has nothing but her art for both foundation and coping stone. I can remember well talking to a very young girl who was by nature a genius. But only this one part of her soul life had been developed, while all the rest was in a deplorable state of neglect. I knew also another young genius whose natural gift for study had been sacrificed for the art she had chosen. The result 
was sad indeed. She was like a lopped tree with only one branch left, or a person with but one limb, and the genius which should have been her happiness was but her bane. She had no chance of recreation, for her very soul, as well as her mind, seemed one-sided, and she became simply a monomaniac on her genius side. While, had she been well-trained, she might have been a charming, interesting, and noble woman, and her life's success assured, instead of being, as she was, merely another genius who failed. She said to me, I hate to study books. I simply hate it. Now when I'm working at my piano, then I am happy and most diligent, but the moment I sit down at my books, then my mind wanders, and I cannot keep my attention upon what is before me. My dear little girl, said I, listen to me. If you would make a success in your piano work, and remember, this is the experience of many who have climbed the difficult path you are on. If your mind wanders from your work, no matter what it is, it shows that it wants disciplining. And for that disease, one of the best cures is the study of mathematics, Euclid, and the like. And to arouse ambition, you must know what others have done before you. If you receive no impetus from the successes and failures of others, then what a vast amount of energy is lost in the world in preparing for you and me the high example of the life works of men dead and gone. But there, I am giving you a lecture, and I didn't intend to. Afterwards, I discovered that this same small girl was compelled to leave her work and enter a college for beginners before she was able to interpret correctly the minds of the masters she loved. I suppose I dwell upon this because out of the humdrum days of my school time I received so much. I learned, when adding up my sums, that the piano keys must be forgotten, that I must not think of the wonders of Beethoven and Chopin, and it is not hard for me to bring out of the storehouse of my mind the exact words my mother used to say to me when I became discouraged. We were great pals, my mother and I. One morning I was in a rage over a problem that I could not solve, and she took me upstairs alone, and there she said, Has my little daughter lost all her splendid ambition? No, indeed, but I would rather play. It's so much easier. That's because you like it, Maud, dear. And let me tell my girl this, that it is the things in life we don't want to do that count in the end for us. Remember this, if you aim high, you'll hit high. If you skid your stone along the ground, it can rise no higher. But thrown into the air, it must go somewhere. I went meekly back to my sums, and, well, now I am glad I did it. I grew to love my school, my books, my work. It was a disappointment verging on a sorrow to me if I were compelled to miss one day's instruction, though illness or other good reason. I felt as though my sun was setting forever when I left for the last time the schoolroom with its dear familiar setting. I would wander down between that day and the one on which I left for the old world, 
time after time, and visit the old haunts. It gave me comfort to take up my books and fondle them. I hated to put them away, but, alas, it had to be, and I delved down into the treasures of my music, as only we can when trying to become reconciled to a great sorrow. From this point on, my life began to change. The seriousness of world problems began to take hold of me, and I grew greatly interested in the new trend of things. I had often played in public from the time I was twelve years of age, but now my ambitions seemed to give me no rest. To go abroad and become great filled my heart with a longing not to be stilled. I attended all the concerts of the great artists, and once, although in the afternoon I had been fearfully bitten by a savage Newfoundland dog, I would not forgo the great pleasure of hearing Adele Austeoa play that night. Her wonderful technique inspired me so that I forgot entirely the painful wound of which I carry the scar to this day, where the great white teeth caught and pierced the flesh. It was days before I could go back to my own scale playing, but I didn't waste my time. Loaded with Duchesse and La France roses from our own lovely garden, I went to the hotel where this clever artist was staying and made her acquaintance. She seemed to take an interest in me, too, and many instructive and delightful hours were spent with her during her stay in San Francisco. With renewed courage, I went back to my own work when the bandages were removed, and the time sped along, and the day for my parting from my home, my childhood, and my many dear friends came. 